my Govanen. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm Tolkien Geek, and for a long time I've had on my wish list a book called The Science of Middle-Earth, which I think came out in the 70s or 80s. I may be wrong, and I forget the exact name of the author. And recently, this past Christmas, in fact, my wife got me The Science of Middle-Earth, but it's not the same book, because, in fact, this particular volume, The Science of Middle-Earth, A New Understanding of Tolkien and His World, actually came out just last year in 2021 and is a collection of many short essays on various scientific topics related to Tolkien and is not the work of a single individual like the one that I had on my list. I didn't even know this one existed. So now I'm going to be doing a book review of it because I've read it and uh, let's just say there's some interesting positives and negatives about this book, uh, which we will get into in some detail. But uh, overall, it at least makes for an interesting read. It's not one that I would recommend for anybody looking to become more scholarly about Tolkien, um, but it is interesting for anybody who is you know, interested in science and particularly speculative science, let's say, because there is a lot of speculative science in this volume. And that's, you know, in some sense, no fault of the various authors. There is not a lot of, you know, really hard data that we can look to in Tolkien's world to really build up scientific theories about different things. He's operating much more on the level of myth and legend than he is on science. So it, you wouldn't expect to be able to draw a whole lot of science out of his work. But nevertheless, these various authors do make an attempt at many different topics. So let's take a look at uh, some of the examples, some examples of the topics they do cover, and talk about some of the positives and negatives that I found about this book. So just as a starting point, let's take a look at the table of contents and see what types of things we can read about in this volume. In major topics, they have things about world building, uh, space and time, the environment, uh, the characters, and various you know anthropological or other human-related sciences, such as medicine. They've got lots of stuff on different types of animals and things. So those are some of the broad areas that are covered here. Some notable individual topics include archaeology, historiography, linguistics, of course, uh, geology, uh, we've got plants and landscapes, we've got precious stones, subterranean worlds, we've got various things about humans such as you know, possible evolutionary trees that might explain the various species in Middle-earth. We've got medicine. We've got things on whether ints could really exist. Why do hobbits have big, hairy feet? Um, and then lots of stuff about animals, including oliphants, birds, wargs, bayorn. Is he a man-bear or a bear-man? Uh, and then even balrogs you know, various different things. And even, you know, whether the giant eagles could actually exist as described scientifically. So there's a wide array of topics covered by this volume. Many of them are actually very interesting. Some of them, especially in the more environmental area, such as climate studies and things like that, they have a couple of topics like that, uh, get very 
you know, hard science-y. They actually look at Tolkien's maps and say, well, based on where the mountain ranges are, here's where you would expect rainfall, forests, this sort of thing. And does that actually match up with the different environments we see in Tolkien's world? And some of the conclusions are actually, well, no, we wouldn't expect this forest here because it's on the wrong side of the mountains. So they actually have some topics in here where there's like intersections of Tolkien's world and hard science that, you know, make you rethink like, okay, so Tolkien wasn't a super environmental scientist. Who cares really at the end of the day? But it's interesting to know those kind of things if you're fascinated by both science and Tolkien and, you know, reading some of this stuff is kind of interesting. And it gives you, you know, if you're interested in writing your own story, it can give you a really interesting lead in terms of, okay, now how do I develop my own world in a more scientific way? Which would have been relevant to Tolkien as well, because Tolkien was, of course, in the end of his life, working on making the Silmarillion much more you know, consistent with modern science and other knowledge forms that we have now, and much less of the mythical type of Silmarillion that he was writing in the early 19-teens and, and, you know, between that period and when he wrote The Lord of the Rings. After he wrote The Lord of the Rings, he tried to make it much more, you know, much more like The Lord of the Rings in that is in that it is much more consistent with what we know from history, science, and everything else, at least as he understood it at the time. Of course, he wouldn't have been able to change the map of Middle-earth from The Lord of the Rings. It was already too late for that. Some of the topics, as I mentioned, are, of course, much more speculative, and that's because a lot of information is just not there in the text that we have to work with. So some of the topics like medieval fantastical metallurgy, uh, a chemical history of the One Ring, and you know some of these things that really touch on some of the more mythical aspects or magical aspects, or even things that just wander into territory where there's just virtually no data. There's a lot of speculation that goes on, and in some cases they aren't really even speculative or hard analyses so much as just kind of like summaries of information we do know and what we don't know. For example, the one about ornithology, you know, study of birds. Like, there's, we know where some birds are, and we don't know where other birds are, and there's a little bit of science in there, but there's not really a whole lot of analysis so much. It ends up being more just like, a, here's what we can kind of gather from what we do know, which isn't a whole heck of a lot from Tolkien's references to birds. I mean, there are several references to birds, obviously, in both The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. So there's some information to go on, but there's not really a whole lot and not enough to make huge amounts of scientific conclusions there. So it's some of them are not so much even speculative. They're just kind of, here's the information we do have, and we can draw maybe a couple conclusions from it, and that's kind of it. So some of these are more interesting than others. Some of them are, you know, and it's going to depend on what specifically kinds of things you're interested in as well. But now let's take a look at some of the positives and some of the negatives that I got out of this book, and maybe that'll help you decide whether it's worth picking up. So on the positive side, as I mentioned, there are several pieces in here that really do address hard science issues. One of the ones that stood out was, again, the one about you know, what kind of environments would you expect to find near mountain ranges, you know, the actual environmental 
science of it all, like where, and it's not, you know, every now and then they do touch on, you know, environmentalism, like global warming and stuff like that. But I mean, they really don't get into that so much as like the hard environmental ecology and, and things that are a lot more observable and present day, so to speak, because they're really looking at like, you know, for, like I said before, here's a mountain range what can we expect from rainfall based on that? Is it going to be on this side of the mountain range or that side? And based on that, what kind of, you know, ecology can we expect on either side of that range? So you've got some that are really interesting because they give really solid scientific analysis of things and it tells you, well, you know, Tolkien wasn't necessarily thinking so much about that because he kind of got it wrong in a sense. Uh, and there's stuff about, you know, could Mordor as a, as a mountain range enclosed area, could that really exist? And, you know, various different things like that. So that's one positive is you do have some pieces that are really in depth and hardcore with their scientific analysis of various aspects of Tolkien's story. Some of the speculative ones are interesting if you're interested in speculative types of you know, scientific analysis, and sometimes the speculation is, as I mentioned, just because there's just not enough information there, uh, and sometimes it's because, you know, the person just decides, well, you know what, it might be interesting to think about this, regardless of whether we've got enough information, and sometimes that goes too far, and that becomes kind of a negative, but sometimes it's interesting, at least, and in that sense, is a positive. Another positive is the wide array of topics because they really do touch on a lot of different things. And, you know, like a, there's even linguistics. They're not constricting their science down to, you know, only the natural sciences even. So there's, you know, analyses of various different things. Now, I will say the first section, which is on world building, is one of the less hardcore sec sections because it really isn't about natural sciences and it's kind of more observing Tolkien's use of world building and how he does it and not really applying a lot of any kind of scientific, even in a language sense, language science, analysis to a whole lot of what's there. There is some, but it's not nearly as scientific as the rest of it. That being said, there are very many sections later in the more scientific, you know, parts of the book that are also not that scientific because they get too far into speculation or whatever. But, you know, if you have a particular scientific interest, chances are you can find it in this book. I mean, it's it doesn't cover everything, obviously, but it has a pretty broad array of topics, as I mentioned. So those are some of the key positives. Some of the key negatives are, as I mentioned, when the speculation gets a little bit out of hand, some of them are so speculative that they become really more just, you know, just you almost, I hate to use the term, but some of them become just downright almost fan fiction-y because they go so far and it's really more the person writing or reading in their own headcanon into what's going on rather than observing what's on the page and applying science to it. An example of that is the one that talks about the medicine of, you know, the Middle-earth. 
and they start talking about various different things, like hobbits don't really seem to have a whole lot of need for doctors until there's a major disaster, and then they need a wizard, and then whether they pick a good or a bad one is really down to intuition. It's like, what? What are you even talking about? Um, and, you know, it seems like they're probably referring to the fact that Gandalf helped out the hobbits during the the really bad winter where the wolves all attacked and there was a plague and... You know, so yes, but that was Gandalf stepping in, not hobbits seeking out the aid of a wizard. And we cannot draw the inference from this that there are no hobbit doctors, nurses, healers of any kind. There is simply no basis for that. We don't know of any from the story, certainly, but I mean, in almost any society, you're going to have among your farmers and tradesmen, you're going to have somebody who knows how to do healing. And then they even make an argument that, you know, of the various humans that are in Middle-earth, it seems like 80% scorn treatment. Why would you say that? I mean, just because the only human healers we really run across are the Houses of Healing in Gondor, which is probably the most populated human center in Middle-earth, by the way, um... In what sense can we draw the inference of what percentage of humans just kind of scorn treatment? And then they even talk about Gollum being a schizophrenic. It's like, you've been watching too much of the movie if you're going there, because that's not really the way Gollum operates in The Lord of the Rings. I mean, he does kind of act like a schizophrenic in some ways, in in the book even, but they're drawing the inference that he was like that before he found the ring, and that's why he murders Diagol. And it's like, ah, I don't, I don't think you can really go there, people. That's just really not a legitimate thing that you can try to argue based on the text. And this brings me to another criticism. Many, many times they will refer to things in the movies as opposed to the books. And sometimes they will make this you know, evident. They they will, you know, state up front, we're looking at the movies here, such as when they examine wargs scientifically, because we don't have a clear image of what wargs would have been like phylogenetically or whatever from Tolkien's work. And so visually, we have to have some kind of way of looking at them if we're going to examine them scientifically. So we have to rely on movie portrayals of them. And that's fine, you know, if you just want to say, look, to the extent that we can think about these things at all, we kind of have to do so in the context of the book. I mean, in the movie. But then they'll do it when there's really no reason for that, such as the one about why do hobbits have big, hairy feet. Hobbits don't have big, hairy feet. They have hairy feet with leathery soles, according to the book. It's only in the movie that their feet are particularly big and that's really because, for purposes of the movie, they were all wearing prosthetic feet, which necessarily are bigger than their own natural feet. So that's that's really an unfair way of going about the science of Middle-earth. I mean, the, nowhere in, in Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit are hobbits ever said to have big feet. And so trying to figure out why, from an evolutionary perspective, hobbits would have big feet isn't... It's a non-sequitur. It's a red herring. It doesn't... I'm not even sure what to apply to that. I mean, but it doesn't make any sense, right? Um, and then you have other things, like when they try to argue about the evolution, evolutionary way of looking at 
humans, hobbits, dwarves, and elves, and how you could connect them all in a phylogenetic tree, it's like, but we already know from the Silmarillion that all of these things are, you know, other than humans and hobbits, created independently by a creator. Like, there is no evolution there. That That's not part of the story. Now, they kind of try to get around that by arguing, like, okay, so that's the story, but, like, could this happen, you know, and how would it happen if it did? It's like, but am I really interested in that when that's not the story? Like, I don't want a scientific analysis of how something could have happened if the story were not written the way it's written. Why do I want that? And why would I want to mess up the myth of the story with Aule creating dwarves, getting in trouble for it, and then getting forgiven and having his creation accepted into the greater creation? Why would I want to give that up by thinking, well, what if dwarves just kind of evolved naturally on their own? That's so much less interesting as a story. Like, who cares? So there are very many elements like this throughout the book, and... Some of those are just kind of annoying when they do them. Every time they rely really heavily on the movie, it's like... But now we're not talking about Middle-earth. We're talking about Peter Jackson's portrayal of Middle-earth, not all of which was accurate. And, you know, all these different things, it's just like... And we're not doing science anymore. You know, at that point, you're really not talking about the science of Middle-earth. You're talking about something else. You know, it's barely science to begin with half the time because there's so little information to go off of. But then there's, you know, then you get stuff like you're not even talking about Middle Earth anymore. And similar things happen with, you know, they talk about the eyesight of elves and whether a giant eagle could really exist in the form described because once you get that big, you can't really generate enough lift and all this other stuff. It's like, you know, just kind of leave the myth alone for a little bit. Like... Interesting, maybe, to know, but do I really want to be thinking about that when I'm thinking about the giant eagles? Probably not. You know, so, I mean, when you start intersecting with the myth and you just start basically saying, well, this mythological thing is just inaccurate because that couldn't actually happen in real life. Okay, fine, but do I really care? Uh, You know, I mean, maybe some people do, but not particularly me. I mean, if you're just really interested in aviation, maybe that's a thing you care about, but I'm not a huge fan of it. Anyway, those are kind of the broad positives and negatives and an overall look at this book. So if you found this useful, I hope you did. Uh, Give it a thumbs up, share it around. Maybe now you're either looking at buying this book for yourself or for somebody else who might be interested in it. Uh, please also subscribe and click the bell icon to get more content from me in the future about Tolkien and everything related to him. I'm also putting out these videos on Odyssey and Rumble, and I have podcast versions that you can catch on pretty much any podcast catcher at this point. And you can support me over at Patreon. Oh, and follow me at Twitter for occasional Tolkien-related trivia questions. Until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namariye.